welcome everybody to Don Blue Theater, uh, the newest segment here on Land Before Timeland. For these uh, bonus episodes, we are going to be looking at the entirety of famed animator, director, Don Bluth's filmography. Yes, as you may or may not know, Don Bluth was the filmmaker behind the original Land Before Time. He had jack all to do with the many sequels that followed. But his own career uh, ended up taking a similarly silly path. A lot of the early films are praised as among the greatest animated films of all time. And then he started doing uh, weirder stuff that, uh, you know, the the road gets a little rockier uh, as you progress down the career of Don Bluth. But every film at least has something really interesting to talk about. Yeah, until, um, you know, like Anastasia or something like that. But, but until then, um, yeah, there's at least something interesting to talk about. And like Chris said, the first few movies in his um, filmography are absolute classics. So for those of you who don't know, Don Bluth did work at Disney at the beginning of his career. Yeah, he, he was an animator on a lot of the, the Dark Ages uh, Disney stuff like uh, Fox and the Hound and the Rescuers. Um, he was the animation director on Pete's Dragon. Um, and he was frustrated working for Disney, as uh, many people have been. And uh, The Secret of Nim was one of numerous projects that he, he tried to pitch to Disney and Disney just kept shooting him down and so one day he and a bunch of his friends just up and left Disney and went and started their own animation studio and The Secret of Nim was the first film that they made. It was based on a novel, I, I believe it was called Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim and Don Bluth uh, made a few changes uh, to the novel resulting in the film that we just watched. He's also not yet at Universal. Uh, most of his most well-known films will be made with um, Amblin Entertainment and, and Steven Spielberg. Such, such as Land Before such Time. Such as Land Before Time and um, American Tale. But this one was made at, I think is now defunct United Artists. I don't know if United Artists still exists as a company. This is also an MGM production. I, I think it's funny that he ended up working with Steven Spielberg, just like Jeffrey Katzenberg with DreamWorks. Yeah, eventually you just get tired of working with Disney. You know, you, <laughs> you make some output and you're like, God damn it, get me the hell out of here. And Steven Spielberg is there with open arms to welcome you into uh, being the, the rival animation studio, whatever, yes. whatever that may be at, at your particular point in time. Absolutely. And I think that is is also uh, a very apt comparison because Don Bluth was the kind of uh, savior of animated films for uh, the dark ages of Disney, as in they were the ones like basically picking up the slack um, where Disney was uh, severely lacking. And then Katzenberg, um, who, you know, helped usher in the renaissance of Disney animation, also helped to make uh, great 3D animations for DreamWorks when Disney was having its uh, second dark age. Yeah, it's it's interesting how history repeats itself <laughs> again it, and again. I think, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit um, as we're discussing the, the film, but I think there is, is a limit of expressive potential available to somebody at Disney. It's just such a massive corporation. Yeah. It's got its little tendrils, you know, in everybody's brain. And, and after a while, if the Disney brand just doesn't fit your vision, then your vision has to break out of the Disney brand. Uh, so let's uh, dive right into it. Secret of Nim is often considered one of Don Bluth's best films. It's a cult classic. I'm not sure how successful it was when it first came out, but I think it was a bit of a sleeper hit. Critics loved it. Siskel and Ebert on the show were, you know, gave a lot of high praise towards it and compared it very favorably to Disney animation, which for them was the golden standard of Disney of, of animation. Yeah, I don't 
think it really got uh, an audience until it came out on video or after uh, Don Bluth's more successful works came out. I don't believe this was a big hit. It definitely wasn't um, one that I remembered from childhood. Um, I, I think I saw it once when I was a really little kid and I basically forgot everything about it. Um, so seeing it just now was kind of like seeing it all new for me. Whereas American Tale and Land Before Time are baked into my brain. And I, I think part of the reason for that, and maybe one of the reasons why it wasn't as successful when it first came out, was that it's not really like made for kids, at least not in, in the traditional sense. It reminds me of something like Dark Crystal or some of the stuff that Jim Hansen was making around the same time where like the target was obviously children, but like there were so many like adult themes in it that like yeah. kids could be easily confused watching the movie. And I think I remember that as well as a child, like not actually remembering what Secret of Nim was about. So I think a lot of that stuff just flew over my head. Yeah, it was it was kind of this idea of this radical idea of let's not condescend to children, you know, let's try and give them the this this dark emotionally rich story um, with a lot of of important themes and see if see if they can digest it and and some kids can and some kids can't obviously it it didn't really stick in my head uh, as a kid I think I just didn't know what was going on but it's a richly emotional story and it's very very bold to make something like that for kids yeah let's do a, a quick plot overview. Uh, Chris, you're going to explain the plots of films. Okay, so um, our protagonist is named uh, Mrs. Bisbee. Um, so Mrs. Bisbee is is a single mom uh, mouse, mother of three, and she lives in a farmer's field, and every time the, the plow comes by, the mice all have to move. They have to go find another home, or they, they will be destroyed by the plow. They call it moving day. But she can't move her one of her children because... Her child is sick, and so and being being moved out in the cold air could kill him. So she embarks on a quest to try and figure out what she can do about this by talking to various learned people in in her community, and it slowly kind of unravels this big mystery that's been going on that that connects to kind of the fate of everybody in in the area. NIM itself is the National Institute of Mental Health, I think it they say yes. it is. It's an acronym. What we what we eventually find out is that the the rats and mice that live in this area have escaped from a lab. They've been genetically modified and they gained intelligence, and they have been trying to survive um, on this on this farmer's field, trying to build a civilization for themselves, uh, which is threatened both by uh, internal power struggles and by the threat of the farmer and his cat and the threat of uh, the scientist from NIM coming to exterminate them. So this small story about this mother trying to save her family ends up getting tied into this large story about how to save the cradle of a new civilization, basically. All of this stuff kind of slowly evolves as the film goes on. They don't really hit you on the head with all of this information right away. It's often uh, very vague and mysterious, especially at the beginning. Though the NIM is explained in a kind of 
blank and you'll miss its sequence. Um, but otherwise, like it is kind of like a big reveal when the um, uh, the rats, you know, you discover that they are uh, come from uh, you know these uh, scientific experiments that are probably illegal now, or at least like at least like much more controlled by um, the, the the animal movie, production groups and things like that. The movie does uh, subtly imply that uh, whatever was going on at Nim was not supposed to be going on, or it was it was very horrible. Like the the animals were like tortured and all, yeah. all of that stuff and the nim scientists are now like clearly like trying really hard to cover it all up you know there's this this looming threat that they're going to come and try and exterminate all the rats on this farm you know to to hide all all evidence of what they've what they've been doing right. The first thing that really stood out to me about this film is the animation is gorgeous. It might be technically John Blue's best film. I, I'm not sure his animation ever got as good as this, even though he has some amazing animations that are also technically brilliant, I would argue. But here it's like, it's it's all traditional uh, animation. It's all uh, hand-drawn since the 80s. And it just holds up extremely well. It's absolutely gorgeous. All of the colors... The light, the layouts, the, the character designs, the fluidity of the movement is extremely rich and textured and beautiful. Um, the whole film, visually and auditorily, has an extremely haunting quality because, you know, I know we've just described kind of kind of a science fiction plot, but the science element of the plot is very minimal. This is actually much more of a dark fantasy yeah. type of film. There is a, a very dark fantasy, dark crystal-esque kind of vibe going through this whole thing. And it's it just kind of gets into your into your head. Yeah. And I think that they intertwine really well because I mean and make sure you, you've seen the film because this is really isn't gonna be a straight up plot description. We are just kinda gonna go through like thematic elements and just kind of point out the things that we are really interested in. So, you know, we don't want you to get lost. But the fantasy elements and the science fiction elements I think intertwine really well because they are basing it on on that old idea of like uh, magic is just technology we don't understand yet. Right. So when we see the, the science around it, it has a magical quality because we are seeing it from the perspective of these other animals that don't understand exactly what's going on. And even some of the more magical elements where there are points in the movie where like, okay, can science actually do this? But at the same time, you're thinking, well, these rats have an intelligence even beyond humans because of, of the experiments. It's very much yeah. implied that they might not actually be magic because there are some stuff that's very fantastical in it. It might just be that their their minds have been so opened up that they were able to create things um, that just did just were not possible for people with just regular intelligences. Yeah, the the leader of of the rats, uh, Nicodemus, yeah. is yeah. what we would describe as a wizard. He he's he's got magic he he can move things sort of with his mind and he seems to have this energy about him and he has all of these you know fantastical magical contraptions in his room you know like a crystal ball gazing apparatus and you just kind of get the the feeling that these rats have evolved now beyond what the humans even expected that they would but the technical details of that are not what the film lingers on because the whole point of the the film the whole theme of the rats 
struggle is how are we going to live now that we have risen above being humble rats? The rats want to better themselves. They want to improve their their society. They want to live with dignity. And they, they recognize their former existence as creatures on the street just stealing scraps and, you know, living off of man's work, they call it, as being disgraceful now that they have attained this this evolved status and the whole the whole uh, objective for the rat society is how how can we not only survive save our civilization but uh, how can we exist in a way that is befitting the dignity of what we have now become which I thought was a really interesting and powerful subject matter for the film it's very powerful. I, I don't think I, I agree with that that particular message of the film because how they're portraying the rats as these people that you know steal from humans. I, I myself personally wouldn't see that as like a bad bad in the sense that it's like it's a disgrace to dignity. I would see it as a mode of survival. And I am worried about like what comparison we are supposed to to make to that. Like these rats that are kind of like these feral homeless if you will creatures that are kind of just like taking things like there's there's a point where they, they remark that they're stealing electricity from the 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 farm the farmers and they're saying that's bad we have to make our own electricity and th- there's a there's an individualist message there that i can't completely get behind if that makes sense i agree with that it feels to me like it was kind of a biblical thing almost yeah. like when the rats were were bestial they were exempt from morality but now they've kind of taken a bite of the tree of knowledge yeah. of good and evil and I, they, I, yeah i agree with that and they now have to rise to the occasion as as more echoes of god or whatever it would be like like the 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 humanness that they gain is a, is a sort of angelic spiritual quality that they have to live up to and that of course as a humanist is not a message that you know uh, speaks to us but uh, in the in the fantasy fabric of the film that is kind of the the moral framework that they're working with for, for me like kind of examining the, the thematic elements of this film and um, the message that it's trying to say is really fascinating because I think there is a lot of stuff going on in this film that I think is absolutely fascinating and really uh, distinct in children's animation. Like you don't generally get stories of, of this of this subject matter. I don't want to say complexity because there's been complex animations before, but like how this is presented in such a big Hollywood studio budget way, it, it's very rare you see things like this. Extremely. I've never seen anything that was so, that was this level of production for animation, but felt very like, honest to itself like it had its full artistic integrity the only thing about this that feels to me like a concession to the way hollywood movies are made is the crow character yes i was um i'm glad uh, you brought that up because i think <laughs> the crow is probably the worst part about this movie i know it's dom de louise and he is a great voice actor but he really feels like he's in this movie just for a comedy relief character because there would not be a comedy relief character without the crow without yeah. G- uh, Jeremy is and it, it and it yeah. really doesn't need him no the tone of the film doesn't need him because the wonder and the darkness uh, and the the beauty of it work perfectly fine with everybody being serious. And he doesn't actually even service the plot in no. any crucial way. He just exists to 
periodically show up and have antics and trip over himself and annoy the main character and entire scenes are spent on just him being silly and then we get back to the story yeah he seems like he just doesn't even belong in the film like we're, we're watching something else when when he appears in a scene like it's one thing to not have any relevant impact on the plot but i don't even think he serves really any thematic element besides like we got a some executive saw this and was like this is like the saddest thing i've ever seen <laughs> yeah. you gotta put in you gotta put in some levity even his his introduction is pr probably the worst scene in the whole movie let me kind of kind of picture it like this the, the film Opens with um, uh, was it uh, Nicodemus or N Nicodemus? Nicodemus, Nostradamus, obviously. So yeah. Nic Nicodemus, you know, writing in this book, and it's all magical. You see these um, letters appear as if by by light itself. We see what will become a a staple of Don Bluth's work during this time. This this backlighting effect, where you take a cell and you shine light back into it to create another worldly effect. Um, used throughout this film, and it looks stunning. It's beautiful. We cut from there to Mrs. Bigsby uh, interacting with this this old man, old mouse character, Mr. Ages. Mr. Ages. Mr. Ages. Wonderful name. He's a cantankerous old kind of like, oh, you know, the kids these days kind of character. And when we go into his his room, we see all of these like potions and chemicals and things like that, and it has a very uh, mystical um, quality to him. It, it's very witch-like very sorcerer-like, even though, as we, we're going to learn uh, later on, that it is actually all science-based. But at this point in the film, everything looks like magic. And then we go from that scene immediately into this gag scene with Jeremy the Crow that is is so, like, out of place and just so... And a storytelling trope, it's also, like, really bizarre, too, because we're basically going from, like, one character introduction scene, which is of this character, Mr. Ages, to just another character introduction scene we don't really have like a yeah. plot yet as to what's even going on well plus it it, it sort of interrupts the urgency of the moment because she's going to mr ages to get medicine for her son yeah which she then urgently wants to bring back to the house but then on her way back to the house she has to stop to untangle this bird and it's it's just kind of like oh okay is this character we're meeting going to be really important to whatever happens to her no not no. really and yeah and, and the character is completely out of whack like he is a, a goofy uh a very dumb kind of crow that kind of he, he's exactly what up. you would expect from a, a dom deloise performance yeah you know? um a, a less realized uh, version of um uh the cat he would play in american tale um whose name <laughs> escapes me at the moment yeah tiger tiger Tiger's the cat's name. At this point, like I was actually not sure if this movie was as good as I remember it. I think, I mean, first of all, I'm going to highly recommend this film. It is an amazing film. However, I will say the beginning is probably the worst part. Like the first like 10 or 20 minutes, I think, are kind of bad in this film. But once you get to Nim, I think the movie really takes off. But it takes a bit to get there. Yeah, because our our introduction to this grand story of of a new civilization is this this one woman's personal story of just how do I protect my children? How do I cure my sick kid? How do I save my house? And the telling of that story is a little slow. And uh, once 
she does finally start to unravel the big mystery, probably right around the time she visits the owl yeah. is when things get really good for me. Yeah, but you know, like we said, the crow just really just like grinds the plot to a halt. Yeah. It's it's really it's really not great. He's also a deliberately obnoxious character because his whole thing is that he won't go away yeah. and she can't get rid of him. Exactly. Like every every single joke is just, okay, you can go away now. Okay, okay, I'll go away. Okay, one more thing. Like yeah. It's, it's, it's basically that. Yeah. It's the whole time it just it's it absolutely sucks. And his whole arc that's not even really an arc is just he wants to get laid and get this nest so he can Yeah, he he's can an incel it. crow. He's an incel crow. The ladies don't like him. Yeah, because uh he's I mean He's very dangerous. <laughs> they end that arc like we actually cared, which I thought was really funny. They actually decide to end his journey and give him a, a lady crow at the end. I think it's the last shot of the, the film. The last shot of the film. Like, oh, like you, we, I didn't have to like <laughs> see that. Like we could have just pretended like he never happened. Yeah. He's one of the characters in the film that I really think doesn't work. The opposite of that, I want to talk about the main character, Mrs. Bisbee, uh, who is one of the most, I think, fully realized female character in an animation um, let alone just feature films in general. I'll agree with that. I think she's wonderful. I think she's an incredible character. What I really like about her she is a very clearly defined feminine character without any kind of, of compromise to who she is and what she's able to do. She's not a, um, a uh, he for she kind of character you would get in something like Aliens or um, Underworld or something like that. Yeah, she's not strong by by her masculine traits. Yeah. And, and except for like a like a couple of like very few like very brief scenes, she also doesn't really like rely on her her feminine ways to get what she wants, but at the same time her journey is completely feminine and and based in motherhood but not in a way that's insulting to being a mother which is what films have done in the past it's that it's her being a mother that gives her strength yeah the whole film really is about regardless of what's going on with this this rat society and the and the, the big big stakes she's just trying to save her children you know which what what better yet yet simpler stakes could there be for a story and everything that she does all of her danger that she risks all of the strength she shows is is just in her simple drive to to protect her family i think it's really interesting how the film compares her as a character uh to the the looming shadow of her life which is her husband who who dies before the movie starts uh, Jonathan Brisby, who we learn later on is considered like a hero to the rats of Nim. And a lot of the early things that she is able to do is because of her husband and um, that he was this, this great figure. Like the great owl helps her because of her husband, which I think in a weaker movie would overshadow even her as a character where she would really just be like the widow of this great man there would be a plot about her obsessively trying to find out more about him and what yeah. he did instead she really just kind of finds these things as she's going along like she is obviously sad and, and heartbroken by the death of her husband but she also moves on and goes forward and i think it helps to kind of serve her as a a really interesting comparison kind of like the line between the natural world of 
the other animals and the the scientific world of the rats of Nem, which is something that, if not outright said in this film, is played with a lot in, in the details and some of the subtext of the characters. For instance, all the characters have some kind of intelligence or, or can talk. It's not just these rats who are given these um, these shots or chemicals like all woodland creatures can communicate with each other. And Mrs. Bisbee is not one of these these mice or rats. Like, she does not come from the the hospital that gave them all super intelligence, but she is still able to show as much reasoning, if not more reasoning, than the rats of Nim, and arguably does it for much better and more morally just reasons. While the other rats are arguing about how they are going to live, and, and basically they're like secret, like underground, almost um, ivory tower lives, she really is just like the I am just want to save my family. Like you can she's, do whatever you she's want. She's connected to reality in yes. a visceral way that they aren't. Exactly. Like like um the, the rats are very much like those um I mean we've see these these this trope a lot in films where there I guess there's a, there's a bit of a libertarian esqueness to it but I don't I don't think that fully tells the, the the story of these rats but it is definitely like these are creatures that see themselves as higher and greater than other woodland creatures because of their intelligence and they need to go somewhere to be like a way because they're smarter and they, they mentioned this a lot in the film that they're smarter than other animals however they, yeah. they, they call her a lower life form yeah they point. do but however like she's the one that saves them like she is the one who is like able to show this great courage and just from being herself like she wasn't like born into any kind of great power circumstances. She married someone who is of great circumstances, but her her intelligence and her courage are entirely her own. She gains that through her own things. And yes, she I think there's an argument to be made that she did get a leg up in the beginning because of who her husband was. But ultimately, it is her decisions. And I would, you know, if people want to argue and, you know, in the comments or whatever, you post this about maybe there is some sexism there. I, I think it, it's 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 valid. But I think it's at least there's more going on than that. She's also more adaptable than the rats are. Yeah. Uh, she's very versatile. She can do a lot of different stuff. She can pick up, she picks up how to use the magic amulet. She picks up on, on how to do the kind of uh, courageous uh, secret agent stuff. She, she seems to be able to learn and modify her behavior based on the different skills that the task requires, whereas the rats are all very compartmentalized. You know, the rats kind of each represent a different thing, a different aspect of society. There's the captain of the guard who, you know, can do the one thing. The captain of the guard, he's the, he's the fighter, he's the soldier. There's the villainous rat who is just this power-hungry, smooth talker who wants to become the dictator of, of the society. And even the two kind of old old wise figures that are in charge of the society are each kind of separated into their own thing. You have Nicodemus who is kind of the the mystic one, the magical one, and then you have Mr. Ages who is the scientific one. You know, he's he's everything with him is is explainable by some sort of rules and you have all these characters trying to come together and they have a hard time doing it because they're not all thinking along the same lines. They're not all able to 
you know, dip into each other's uh, field, but uh, she's able to to sort of dip into all of their fields and and pick up something from each of them and and run with it. Yeah, and it's very clear that the rats are separated from the Woodland Society. People talk about them as if they were weird or like scoundrels of some kind that they were these arrogant you know disgusting creatures that don't do anything but just like live in their secret society there is a a shrew character who is kind of this voice who's saying oh ignore those rats or you know just doing their weird stuff let's not yeah. bother them the rats themselves don't appear to be helping the forest in any way at least not in this movie we don't see them interact with anyone besides themselves even mr ages is like angry to interact with mrs bisby despite being the widow of uh, of her husband he's very arrogant he's um he's dismissive of her he mansplains to her all the time yeah just terrible and she again shows just so much more like emotional intelligence and ability than than the other rats which is why when they are unable to save um her family is like there's an action beat at the end where her family is, is sinking in a mud in a uh, concrete slab she is able to through courage use this kind of this magic science amulet to um pull them out almost in a way of like how luke skywalker gets the um uh, i guess it's yoda actually yoda gets the um the the x-wing out of the uh well luke luke does it in in the the ninth star wars movie. the ninth star wars yeah it, it's it's kind of like that effect where she's able to pull it out with her courage and there's this blinding light that happens again the animation is, is uh incredible in this and that's something that none of the rats could have done no you know because none of them have the courage of of the heart they they've got their intellects they've got their ideas they've got their egos but she's the one that has courage of the heart it is like interesting to think like how are the rats lives like even made better with the intelligence like how is what they do any like better than what like mrs bisbee and the other animals are doing it really seems like the only difference is they have like all of this technology but we don't really see how useful any of it is yeah there's even an implication that now that they have sort of risen to the level of humans they are plagued with with human problems like uh, petty internal politics mm -hmm. and um because there's a villain who is hungry for power he's trying to dispose of nicodemus so that he can take over and he's got his little toady and that's the sort of problem they wouldn't deal with if they were still regular rats it's yeah. it's implied but now that they they think so highly of themselves they they have all of these all of these new burdens that uh, that come with being a higher life form i want to compare the characters of the Great Owl and Nicodemus, because I think we are supposed to look the, at them as positions. Uh, both of them have like this blinding light effect in their eyes, which I think is to signal that they are very similar. And they are both respectively the elder, I guess, top hierarchy in that way of their respective societies. The Owl of the, the natural world, the natural world, the woods, and Nicodemus of the, the scientific world, the human world, almost of the rats. What, what do you think about that? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I think it almost feels as if as if Nicodemus is trying to imitate the owl 
A oh, interesting. Bit, I know? didn't think about that. Like he's trying to be the rat version of the owl. The the owl is is interesting to me because the owl is clearly an animal. Like he's an owl. He's he eats rats. Yeah. Like she's she's talking as she's going on the way to his lair. Oh, mice mice get eaten by owls, and the the raven says, oh, only after dark. And it's it's heavily implied that there is a potential danger from going to visit this owl. Like maybe he'll give you his wisdom or maybe he'll eat you because that's that's the way the natural world uh works but nicodemus and the owl is very secretive the owl only tells you you know the barest amount of information and quickly quickly heads out on his way whereas nicodemus is this character who you know wants to pretend he's got the whole world in the in the palm of his hand you know we've got a plan let me explain absolutely everything to you here's here's how it's all gonna go he is unprepared for the treachery that does him in um and i don't think the owl would have would have fallen to the same to the same thing yeah the owl is a a very singular figure within uh, the woods almost powerful just by his birthright of being an owl and being intelligent it's all kind of just this, this these these natural phenomena like this is kind of what the world of this of this um these woods are versus uh nicodemus who gets his intelligence from this the science that comes about he is a leader of the rats he is not just a singular force it's just kind of like the the, the top of the food chain that's the, the top of the intelligence there is a community at least to nicodemus like he is trying to better the lives of the rats while the great owl is just the great owl it's it's interesting to to go back to the the topic of the newfound problems and complexities of the rat society that nicodemus can be challenged he can be opposed you know his 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 wisdom is not unquestioned like the owl the owl is is completely unquestioned everybody just knows their place next to the owl but nicodemus is not in such a position because everyone in that society has the same gift of intelligence and therefore the same ability to uh, see themselves maybe as better than Nicodemus if they, you know, if they if they get a mind to. Yeah, the rats are ma- mainly introduced through a, a Congress meeting. Yeah. Where they are arguing amongst themselves about what to do. And it's very parliamentary where they're voting and they're seconding and all these things. And as far as we can tell that that does not exist in the natural society. It's basically like you survive. Uh, there is a great owl, which I don't doesn't appear to be any other authority besides that. Every it's more. It does seem to be more uh, community based. Uh, Mrs. Bisbee you know, works along somebody like the the shrew who i think she even says she's kind of like the assigned um like, like, like organizer or she's the one that kind of like tells the other animals like hey it's time to move yeah she seems to be some sort of community organizer yeah community organizer um definitely not like a community leader it's more just like she just has that role of kind of like she's, letting other people know what, what's going on she's the town crier the town crier exactly in that way it is um i don't want to say socialist i don't want to go that far but it is more of a community-based system Versus the rats, which is much closer to what we have in our society, the society of men, uh, you can say, where there is like a leader, there is like a a strictly hierarchical social contract. Yes. uh, As opposed to just a natural order of things. 
there is now an imposed social order which they are constantly struggling to create and in in a way what they're trying to create is just an imitation of the natural world but it it clearly doesn't work as as flawlessly as the natural world does so i guess i guess there is kind of a man trying to be god aspect uh, yeah. to the rats which is ironic because that's how they arose was humans trying to play god and and make rats intelligent you know i think there is this talk of what it means to have humanity not in the literal sense where these are rats but like having humanity and like what makes somebody you know, you know like what makes a man a man kind of um like bioshock kind of thing there's a great sequence of this where mrs bisbee is tasked with uh, drugging this cat to sleep so that the rats can do their plan when she's captured her piece of clothing is removed from her the cape that she wears and she's naked in this cage when the humans catch her and you really see the difference between like her being a free thinking mouse versus like living in the cage society that the humans have bestowed upon her where you know she's bare you know she's again treated like lesser an yeah, yeah she's she's rendered lesser by the removing of the clothes yes one thing I, I do want to point out about this is is that i think it's really awesome that mrs bisbee does not wear pants uh, <laughs> or like a skirt or something because uh, nor, nor does she have uh, strange lumps on her chest or, yeah <laughs> she is really like drawn feminine but she's not drawn sexual she's like, drawn like a mouse like a mouse like if a mouse was a woman you had to anthropomorphize it a, a little bit like she is very much i think that's what's also really cool about it like she is a mouse but she's not just like a mouse where you can't or it could be like anything like they they don't just neutralize her gender like they do enough to give her like the expression that she is you know of the feminine gender but she's not defined by that it's not an extravagant use of that gender where she's sexualized she's she's not drawn like like gadget from rescue rangers yeah i i'm guessing there's less uh deviant art of this character than (laughs) of some of those i don't want to make that claim i've been wrong before (laughs) but it's and again like when she's naked it's not weird because she is just a mouse yeah and she's shown as naked and there's a lot of really interesting essays written about how being a woman in a cartoon is a character trait by itself like you don't actually have to do anything else besides that while being a man is just the standard and you can yeah. you can add character to that and, and how they often show that is just have a character like wear a dress or like a bow or something like that what, what, what were we watching recently where the where the woman had to wear pants but nobody else wore pants I think that was cartoon. I feel like that was Rescue Rangers yeah yeah, yeah. Rescue Rangers Rescue Rangers Gadget wears pants even has like this kind of human like long hair and she is definitely drawn to the kingdom coming back uh, by <laughs> by yeah. you know DeviantArt and, and you know and stuff like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. We want to make that perfectly clear. Do what you want. But Mrs. Bisbee is not drawn that way, and her femininity is also not sacrificed by that. They don't make the decision of oh, we're just going to make her look like a man, or we're going to make her look more just like a mouse and you can't tell. Though that would also be an interesting expression, you know, if we go that way, which would make a different movie. But it really is just like she is a, a woman. Her strength lies in what that means. And that's it. There's nothing weird about that. She's still a mouse. You don't have to hide anything about her. She doesn't have like any mysterious privates or anything like that that yeah. feel like you know like oh we can't 
like she is treated as a mouse, like she's laid bare and we see all of it and we are not presented as like wrong for that. Like she's shown naked and it's natural. It's not seen as like disgusting or like overly yeah. sexual. The the clothing item that she wears is not to cover herself up for modesty reasons. It's like a symbol of her ascension, you know, basically like I am, she's not human, but I am, I am intelligent because I choose to wear this. You know, it's it's representative of her being a being rather than an animal. And the removing of the clothes doesn't sexualize her, but it, it shows that, you know, if I want to look more like an animal, I take off the clothing. And the removal of her of her clothing then does serve as a removal of her humanity when she is captured by the, the people. Yeah. She's presented a cage. She is shown as just another animal. The only other time we see this in the film is when Nicodemus is telling the story of how the rats became intelligent by going to Nim. Those rats are presented as very much feral wild creatures. They have and the dead just, eyes of they an have animal. They the dead eyes. They have the quadrupedal. They look like rats. Yes. Like they're running around on all fours. And then when they ascend... They they're standing upright, which is which is a big thing. One thing I really like about the designs in, the, in this movie is that um, uh, Mrs. Bisbee sometimes she kind of has this position between standing upright and walking on all fours. It seems like from shot to shot, she's able to kind of change whether she's, you know, running on all fours suits her at the moment or standing on hind legs, which uh, kind of symbolizes, I think, uh, visually her position between the natural world and the the human world yeah as as a liaison between the rats of nim and you know just the ordinary world i think what's really interesting about uh, nicodemus telling the story is that in his tale we see the rats as animalistic the dead eyes like we said before and it's not until after they get the experiments done to them that they become intelligent, that their eyes become more hum human and expressive. The big uh, cartoon eyes. The big cartoon eyes. However, like we said before, they were the only animals that had that done to them. The other animals that we see in the forest have not had those injections, but they are still shown as intelligent. They have the human eyes, the cartoon eyes and all of those things. So I wonder if that story is more how Nicodemus himself views who he was. That makes sense to me. Before the transformation. And this could also go back to what we were talking about, the rats thinking themselves as higher life forms. When they look back at who they are, they probably were just as intelligent as the other creatures in, in the forest and had those eyes. But to him, now that he has you know, gained that knowledge of good and evil the, 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 from the fruit of knowledge... He sees himself as so much higher than what he used to be. Yes. That he, he, feels, he feels like what he used to be was bestial. And it definitely comparison. makes you think of like how they view... Mrs. Bisbee, that maybe they really do just look at her as the same way that they, they used to view themselves as like an animal. Maybe they look less human to them, even though they were just the same not too long ago. And she disproves that that vision at the end by being the only one of them who can use this magic amulet. Yeah. A lot of symbolism going on in this in this film. Like we've like, you know, not even like scratched the surface. There's so much to talk about. The, the I mean the, the the use of color is incredible in this film. We have these these moments of these bright stark oranges and green backgrounds that highlight things that are going on. When you and Aaron did the podcast on the Dino Talk, 
you mentioned how Don Bluth has a has a, a very gritty style, has a very, a very wrinkly style. Textured. Textured. I think that's really what sets Don Bluth's films apart from things like Disney, where his films look dirty and like raw and rough, but like not in a way that it's like, oh, this is a animation mistake or this is because it's hand drawn. Mm -hmm. It's all very intentional. So when you see these moments of like real intensity or you, you enter a room, there's dirt to it that you just don't see in a Disney film. And I think almost really can't exist except for maybe like a couple of exceptions in a Disney film. It's too far outside the Disney brand. Yeah. You know, the Disney look has been so curated over the years that Disney would never want to make a film that looks quote unquote ugly. I think, you know, even if yeah. ugly is, is the way that it becomes beautiful. I think Disney is where creative voice goes to die <laughs> as, as somebody yeah. who loves a lot of, of Disney films I think there's a reason why, aside from like a couple of names, their, their creative team are not household names, except to like, you know, like nerdy animation fans like us, because it is really all seen as Disney. And I think there is a mandate and a assumption that everything made there, regardless of who makes it, is all going to be of the same voice and vision, which was Waltz, even yeah, after well, he died. Waltz set that all up. You know, yeah. he created this person cult of personality around like, I am Uncle Waltz. You know, my face, my name is on everything. Everything is made by me. I get the Oscars. I get the credit for everything. And that exists to this day, except to some imaginary brand. You know, like yeah. Disney very much wants you to think of their films as being made by the Disney logo rather yes. than being made by any of their individual creators. And that's very different from even the level of branding that other studios do. Like if you look at Warner Brothers, they're not cashing in on Jack Warner, you know, these days. They 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 don't care about that sort of thing. It's just like, ah, this is a Warner Brothers movie. We slap our logo on our movie. But Disney is just so, Disney's the Lion King. Emphasis on the Disney's. Yeah, and I think that's why, despite having different directors and different animators, like we think, of a Disney film and a Disney animation film in particular, the work of like one vision, one way of seeing the world. Like, yes, I know that there are nine old men of Disney with their own unique skills and talents, but like besides like a couple of, and again, you can totally call me out on this in the comments because this is probably a hot take what I'm about to say. Aside from like a couple of like animation techniques and maybe some like consistencies or things that those specific animators like to do in a given project, I would argue it is very difficult to tell the difference between who was the lead animator on one project versus the other unless you really, really look deeply into it. And I and I know it's there. You can tell me exactly like why this piece by this person is so much different from this piece by that person. But you really have to get into the minutes, I think, to see that. Yeah, yeah. There there are very few cases where one person's particular thing like shines above the rest. A few cases I, I do feel like I'm able to recognize the work, for instance, of Mary Blair yes. in like Alice in Wonderland yes. and Peter Pan. Like 
oh, I, I recognize the look of those backgrounds. That's Mary Blair. Or like I can look at a Mark Davis yeah. illustration and or animatronic or, or character and be like, ah, that's Mark Davis. But those instances are few and far between because mostly there is an in-house style that they enforce upon everything. I think the funniest example of this, um, especially during this time period, is in the live action movies that Disney made where they do all look exactly the same. Yeah. They all look like TV movies. They all look incredibly flat. They all look like they had the exact same set designer, the exact same camera person, which, you know, physically cannot be possible. <laughs> yeah. But, like, they are so just, like, devoid of any, like, of, of any differences. Like, you look at something like the Apple Dumpling Gang and oh, the yeah. fucking, um, the, 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 the Leprechaun movie they made. And, like, these are the famous ones. Like, one thing I learned when I was going through, when I was, when I got a Disney Plus subscription was going through all these old movies. Like, these are all the exact same movie from yeah. 1960 to, like, 1980. And I think that's, there's a very clear reason for that. And you don't see that in other studios really it's only disney that kind of has this branding which i think is it's probably its greatest strength when it comes to a, a marketing entity but it is also a huge weakness when it comes to like the, the the type of output that is able to be made by it which is why something like don bluth is so fascinating because he is able to express his vision in a way that he was not able to do in disney and we were able to get this grit that i don't think could ever happen the closest you can get to something gritty and dark is something like black cauldron but even then, you cannot get that same uh, that same rust, that same dirt that's in a Don Bluth film. No, I just watched The Black Cauldron. I, I have Disney Plus, and I've been going through all the animated films in order um, on my own. And Black Cauldron almost looks like it's trying to imitate a Don Bluth movie, but failing. Yeah. Because it does not look that good. It just looks like Disney's trying to shake up their look and kind of succeeding, um, but not reaching the level of texture that you have in a Don Bluth movie because they don't they don't care enough, you know, no. about doing it that way. And again, we're not here to just completely shit on Disney. I mean, they've made some of the greatest animations of all time. Uh, unquestionably. But I think there is, you kind of see that what, when Disney was like the only animation game in town, which they were for many, many years, it basically meant that there was only one kind of animation film made, regardless of who the director, who the writer, uh, who did the, the animation, whoever was storyboarding it. It was very much a single vision, a single kind of cartoon. And I think that's why it's it's so important for there to be something that is just different from that that rivals Disney's monopoly on animation in the 40s and 50s that force was was Warner Brothers and MGM making um, uh, Looney Tunes, uh, and the, Tom and Jerry, and things like that. And which the were Looney Tunes cartoons were very much like, here is our answer to the Mickey Mouse cartoons. And they started out very much copying Disney until they kind of got their own voice. Yeah. And you can really see how different those those animations are. You can even really see like the difference between like whoever is directing or, or animating something. Like you look at a Chuck Jones cartoon versus like uh, a Chris Freeling cartoon, and you see the differences in what's happening there. Ch Chuck Jones has a very recognizable style. Yeah, and I, I think you 
you can there's definitely a Looney Tunes brand in the same way that Disney had a brand for their animations, but it's still like even if there's only two, that's still so much more important than one. And then you had something like MGM, which was I kind of somewhere in between, honestly, uh, Disney and Looney Tunes. And then once UPA came out, then you had a, a completely even more just unique voice. And the fact that all these things were existing and happening together and were b- being shown on a, a big stage versus like it wasn't just like Disney had the entire market of uh, theatrical shorts and everybody else has kind of had to play indie theaters. Like they were all being shown on this this big showcase. I think that's what really forced the best and all of them, I don't believe in the idea that we have to have competition in order to make something better. I think that's a capitalist idea. Yeah. And I think it's really, really gross. But in a capitalist society, the only way that we are able to have some kind of creative spark and ingenuity happen is through, unfortunately, competition until we create a, a world where people can all work together well, and that- make their own things. This is kind of what we have. And it sucks, but... It's better than what we have, honestly, currently, where it's really just like Disney and DreamWorks, and that's like really about it. In a, in order to have a healthy artistic world and artistic uh, culture, you you just need diversity. You need a diversity of different visions, uh, all coexisting. And capitalism has a way of erasing diversity and replacing it with monopoly. And so sometimes through capitalistic competition is the only way to create diversity you kind of have to force it into existence and it forces us to talk about these projects as the works of one person usually a white man like we're talking about don bluth as if he like made this entire film entirely himself that he did all the animation he did all the voices and writing when that's yeah, not true there weren't so many other talented people whose whose names are not remembered in association exactly with this film. And, and i think that's what's what's really important is that like just more voices and more ideas being used. And it it says something about the world that just like, in order for Don Bluth to have a voice in this world, like he has to be the leader of something. He has to be the head director. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. like his vision will not be expressed. It sucks to do that in Warner Brothers, but it's also somehow even stranger. It's bad in a very strange way that he could not bring his voice as a director into Disney, who which makes it like Disney like screws over. Like, I don't believe in auteur theory, but Disney like won't even give you that as an animation director. Like there is only one person like versus like five. Yeah. Which is so like, obviously five is still really, really bad, but it's, better than one and that's so weird to like have to give like fucking mgm praise i don't want to fucking praise mgm for anything (laughs) but like that's really what's happening here and that's why it's so important to give just a voice to people and not force creators and teams of animators and teams of creative forces like not forcing them to work in a narrow line and again, I think it's right to argue that Don Bluth was just a different narrow line. But holy shit, isn't that kind of crazy that we're just like celebrating the fact that there are now two narrow lines? Yeah. And the versus <laughs> one narrow line, because like if Disney had its way, it would just be one narrow line when like, again, the best we can have in capitalism is like five narrow lines. And I would rather have that. Again, like I know we're putting all these asterisks on on, this, on what's happening in all this film, <laughs> but I do really want to point out like how as a fan of Don Bluth and how incredible it is, also how how much worse 
it could be. We yeah. promise not to talk about this with every Don Bluth film yeah, that the, we come the, across. This is just the intro. This is this is our this is our uh, our deepest dive into um the the rigors and realities of producing art under capitalism and who gets the credit and who gets the the power. Hey everyone, Maddie here. We decided to break this one up into two parts because our conversation was just that good. So be sure to tune in next time when we tackle the rest of this amazing film, Secret of Nim. See you then.